We're back in the Olivet Discourse this morning, and we're not going to get too far. I think there are some things in verse 3, even though we looked briefly at it in the last session that we had on the Olivet Discourse. So we need to have a clear understanding, I think, of where the disciples were. So the emphasis this morning is you need to kind of imagine you're a disciple in the first century. You're Jewish. You know a little bit at least, or something of the Old Testament. You've heard Jesus teach on some Old Testament passages. And you've studied on your own, and you know passages from Jeremiah. You know passages from Ezekiel. You studied Ezekiel 37, and you know things that God has in terms of the future. You also, obviously, are very familiar with the Pentateuch, because you are Jewish, right? So, what were you thinking when Jesus says the things that he does in the early verses of chapter 24? And we'll continue looking at the setting here. When Jesus says, when Jesus came out from the temple and was going away, when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, we looked at that verse, and we mentioned that the time frame is, remember, the nation has rejected uh, the Messiah. You're a disciple. It's your nation. Your nation has said, no, you are not Messiah. You are a false Messiah. You believe that he is the Messiah, but everyone else, your family and others, have rejected Jesus Christ. Secondly, this is after Christ has announced that he must reject the nation because he must have a believing nation before he can establish the kingdom. Because if Messiah comes, Messiah comes to establish the kingdom. So, because God is a just God, he must reject, and he has announced that in chapter 23. So that's the time frame. Two days before the crucifixion, so Jesus has already told you he is going to die on the cross. And he's given some detail. He's even explained that it's crucifixion. Now, this is a little puzzling in your thinking because you're Jewish. How can Messiah die? So you kind of let it go over your head and it hasn't sunk in yet. Two days before. Also, remember, you are one of these Jewish disciples. You are one of the eleven not a Judas. Also, you're on, text says, on the Mount of Olives. So you're looking over the Kidron Valley, and you see these magnificent structures, these buildings, and how beautiful they are, and magnificent, and how they sparkle in the sun. And you're getting prepared to hear what Jesus is going to say that is mainly prophetic. So, that stirs within you. And by the way, they're also in the other Synoptic Gospels as well. Mark 13, Luke 21. So, and he said to them, Do you not see all these things that they have just pointed out, these buildings? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now he has already told them that God is going to judge the nation because of their... Rejection. In fact, let's look up a couple of those passages. But he has already announced the destruction, and this is one of the clearest passages. 
announcing the soon destruction of the temple and the soon destruction of the nation and certainly the soon destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And that leads them, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which we've shown you what that looks like today, and remove the buildings, and that's probably what it looked like in the time of Jesus Christ and the twelve disciples. East of the Temple Mount, so they're overlooking, looking west, Temple Mount there, they see everything, and those magnificent buildings. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? What is he referring to? In the thinking of the disciples, what do they expect by asking this question? When are you going to take back Israel from home? Very good. First of all, when are these things going to take place in terms of the temple building specifically? But in the back of their thinking, they're also, if you are Messiah, when are you, in fact, going to overtake the Roman Empire? But more specifically, they're asking about what Jesus just announced concerning these buildings, structures on Temple Mount. They can't imagine that happening with the Messiah right there. Exactly. So the follow-up question, that's question number one, and I'll look at it a little bit so that you have the context of everything that Jesus is saying. You're going to follow that up with a at least a second, if not a second and third question. I actually think the next two go together, so there's really two major questions here. One, when will the temple be destroyed? Two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, question number one, when will these things happen? These things, as I've just said, refer to the destruction of the the temple. That's in verse 2. Now, somebody look up uh, verse 23-38, because he, before even this immediate occasion, has already given them at least a hint that this temple is going to be destroyed. And someone look up, you got 19, Luke 19? Okay, you want to do, yeah, Dave, do Luke 19, 41 and 44. You got 38 there? See, your house is left. Your house, what does that refer to? Probably the temple is left to you desolate. In other words, God is going to abandon you. Your house is going to be empty. And remember, the only occupant of the temple is God himself. Or at least it represented, even though God left the temple in the time of Ezekiel, it still represented the presence of God, even though the visible presence had already departed. And the house is going to be left empty or desolate. With God gone, that leaves the house desolate. And He's hinting here, and he makes clear in 24.2, that that temple is going to even be destroyed, obliterated. And he's already announced before in uh, Luke's passage that Dave's going to read, 41 through 44, virtually the same thing. So he's already told them that it's too late for the nation. The nation is basically done. Go ahead and read that. And it's very clear in Luke. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, even this thy day, the things that, which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from 
And the day shall come upon thee, that thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee. Okay, the enemy is going to surround Jerusalem, cast a trench around them. In fact, this is very descriptive and very accurate in terms of 70 A.D. Keep reading. Compass thee round, and keep thee on, in on every side, and shall lay thee eat the ground, and children with thee, and they shall not leave thee one stone upon because thou knowest not I'm thy visitation. The time of thy visitation, in other words, the time of judgment. This is divine judgment, that visitation. Alright? And what he's referring to in that passage, this is a different occasion. This is not the Olivet Discourse, even though there's some similarities with Matthew 23, which is immediately before it. This is a time before, if you read the context there, earlier in the week. He clearly announces the surrounding of Jerusalem and its destruction. So that's what the, what's in the minds of the disciples. When are these going to take place? So the key word there is when, and it's, Jesus does not clearly answer the issue of the destruction of the temple in Matthew's Gospel, even though it's a more complete exposition of the Olivet Discourse. But Luke, and we'll take a little excursus after we get further into the Olivet Discourse, and we'll look at this passage, Luke 21. Luke 21 is also the Olivet Discourse in Luke's Gospel. And in Luke's Gospel, if you look at it and take it literally, that actually took place in 70 A.D., and we'll look at it. And I think Luke answers it. Mark and Matthew omit that portion of it for whatever reason. Does that make sense? So, the destruction of the temple is answered in Luke's Gospel, not in uh, Matthew's. In fact, Matthew overlooks it. Now, what Jesus does do, I think he asks, answers the when part in terms of everything else. When will these things take place? He's not referring to the temple, if you read the context, but if you skip to verse 36, who wants to read that one? Because I think he answers the question concerning the second question. Go ahead, Connie. There's the answer to the when. When. In other words, I think the disciples, in their thinking, in fact, I'm going to go over the things that contributed to what they probably thought. When they thought of Messiah, they thought of, in terms of Old Testament, they thought of something composite or unified, they had no clue. I mean, we look back, and from our perspective, we read with the New Testament, and we realize, obviously, there's a first and a second coming. Disciples didn't have that concept yet, particularly at this time. So when they're thinking destruction of the temple, this has to be associated with Messiah. Messiah is going to establish a kingdom. But then we have to put together all these other Old Testament passages relating to tribulation, dealing with, because uh, he's talked about the nation being destroyed, so we have to have a regathering of the nation. When is all this going to take place? And in their thinking, it's all going to be kind of sequential and somewhat over a very short period of time. Does that make sense? So what Jesus is doing is giving them a picture of eschatology, and from his perspective, he knows that it's not going to be immediate, 
And from our perspective, we know that a lot of it has to be done even in the future from our perspective, 2,000 years later. So, the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in the Greek text, there's a little indication grammatically that this is actually one question with just two parts. And that's the way I take it. There's a Greek rule that, based on the construction there, that puts the two together. So, the question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Not two things, but the sign of your coming and the end of the age together. And I think, even in the disciples' minds, even though they ask two questions, the first question, in their thinking, all goes together. So they're thinking of two things that go together, and actually list three. So when will these things happen? When will the destruction of the temple take place? And also... Uh, what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Their thinking is all together. Now let's kind of go back and see why, and this will also help us to understand the Olivet Discourse itself, because Jesus is going to answer the second question. What will be the sign of your coming? And he's going to lay out, essentially, many of the circumstances, if you will, or many of the signs, if you will, preceding the second coming. Does that make sense? Now, the issue is, always with eschatology, when do these things take place? I'm gonna, I want to address that at the end as well. So let's take a look at that question. That's the second question. What will be the sign of your coming? It has three parts. And first of all, let's look at this word, because you will hear, and you have heard, the word parousia. Have you heard that word? That's a word that theologians often use. They just quote the Greek word, parousia. I've got it transliterated there in parentheses. You'll hear the parousia. What is the parousia? Well, it's a translation of the word coming in this context. And that's all it is. That's what it basically means. Basic meaning has the idea of someone coming, someone arriving. But it also has the idea of someone arriving and being present. It kind of has two ideas together. And I think it takes on theological meaning. In fact, it's used in, a, in an everyday kind of sense of somebody just arriving. For example, in Second Corinthians 7, it's used in its kind of normal usage. And by the way, this word in the Bible is used more theologically than it is in its everyday sense, in its common daily usage. In that Second Corinthians passage, it says, But God, but God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Then he goes on and talks some more about Titus. And not only by his coming, but, I, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in us. It just is referring to the arrival or the presence of Titus. Now that's how it's used in kind of everyday usage. The New Testament adds to that and gives it more of a theological meaning. But it also, in that culture, was used in a more, I guess, technical sense to refer to an official visit of a king. In other words, the coming of the king or the coming of an emperor. The arrival and presence of the, the emperor in a very special sense. 
The New Testament, I think, picks up both those ideas and attaches it to the coming of Messiah, at least the second coming. And you'll find it very commonly in the New Testament in in the sense of the coming and the presence of Messiah. And it's used very often. In fact, let's look up some of those verses. If you look up all of the verses, you'll count 24. 17 of them are used in this theological sense in reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it emphasizes an an additional coming, or what we call a second coming. The disciples did not have that concept at this stage. They may have acquired that, or they should have acquired that, after Jesus gave them the Olivet Discourse, because he lays this all out for us. See what I'm saying here? So keep that in mind as you read it. How would the disciples have understood Jesus? And he is going to reveal to them things that they would not have thought of on their own. This is Revelation. Connie? Parousia. The accent is on the end. I've heard people pronounce it the way you did, but the accent's on the end. Go ahead. Parousia. Mm-hmm. It's never used of his first coming. In the, yeah, in the New Testament, I don't know if it was used outside or not, but the New Testament... 17 of them, they're all references to the second coming. And I think what's emphasized here is when he comes, it's going to settle it. He's got to depart, implying, in other words, he's got to ascend, sit at the right hand of the Father, and then return and remain present. And it'll be like an official visit of a king or an emperor or a dignitary or someone of very great importance. So when you hear people speak of parousia, they're just using the Greek word of coming. But they're adding this theological sense to it, which is, I think, in these passages. Let's look at just a couple of them. The word occurs again. Somebody read Matthew 24, 27. Who's got it? Okay, Jenny and Linda, why don't you read 37 and then 39? And somebody look up First Thessalonians 2. This is just another passage, another one of the 17. Craig, go ahead and do that one. And Jim, go ahead and do Second Peter 3, 4. Some of you need, new people need to jump in here. Don't let these people dominate you all. Go ahead, uh, Jenny. Or just as the lightning comes from the flash of the west, so will the coming on So will the parousia. And that's a description, Jesus' own description of his own coming. It's going to be spectacular. We'll get to that verse. You want to do 37? 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the parousia. In other words, there's going to be similarities between what took place in Noah's day as there will be in the future when the Lord comes or arrives. Yeah, it's part of the Olivet Discourse 24. Mm, Matthew records it in Greek. Some people think Matthew was written in Hebrew originally, but we don't have any manuscripts. Everything that we have that Matthew wrote is in Greek. Yeah. You want to read 39 also? 38 says, For in those days, they were eating and drinking until the day of the flood. And they were unaware until the flood came, so will be. So will be the coming. So he just keeps comparing it to Noah's day. Craig, you got... 1 Thessalonians 
For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of glory? Are not even ye before our Lord Jesus at his coming? At his coming. Okay? Our joy is at his coming. A lot of people are afraid of Bible prophecy. The believer should not be, because that's a point of joy. That's something to look forward to. In fact, it's deliverance. Very good. So this is just one of them. And Second Peter 3, 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his parousia? Well, ever since the promise was made, all conditions as it was. Now you understand this word. Now there's other words, other terms that the Bible uses to refer to this second coming. And later on, maybe we'll get into some of them. So, the last part there, and of the end of the age, okay? You're a disciple, you see all of this going together. In other words, uh, we heard you talk about crucifixion, um, we're not even sure we believe that, you know, somehow you can get around it, or whatever. What we want to know is, when's the temple going to be destroyed, and when are you going to come? In other words, when are you going to come and be present like a king? And when are you going to establish the kingdom, which will be the end of the age? Now, what are they referring to? The end of the age here. The end of this period of Roman domination. Very good. The, the end of the times of the Gentiles, when Messiah will overtake the Roman Empire, and in fact, end this age. Now, in their thinking, the end of the normal, everyday Jewish age, from our perspective, it has to include what else? It has to include the church age. But keep in mind, if you're a Jewish disciple, you have no concept of the church. So our third question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Let's kind of expand upon that. This is what's going on. This is a timeline of what we could describe as the end of the age, on the preceding Sunday, this would have been Palm Sunday, the exact day that is the end of the 69 weeks that we looked at in the book of Daniel. At the end of that day, that ended on the triumphal entry. And it says, after this, Messiah will be cut off. So the after implies, at least, if not... It could be even somewhat explicit, but we know that it is. A gap. What is not known is the length of that gap. We still don't know the end of the gap. Remember, there are 70 weeks that Daniel predicts of Jewish history. 69 of them ended on Palm Sunday or the Sunday of the Triumphal Entry. Okay, on Wednesday, before the crucifixion here, this is the last week of Christ, Jesus is giving them the Olivet Discourse, two days before his crucifixion. So there's the Olivet Discourse. They don't know it, but it's way in the future. This is the question. And they're thinking perhaps maybe months, maybe weeks, maybe a year. All this is going to take place. So they ask when. But what they don't know... So these are some of the... We'll get back to that chart. Because I've got some other things on there. This is what they expected. If you were a good Jew, you knew the Pentateuch, you knew the prophets, you heard Jesus teach, and he's gone through some of the prophets. He went through Isaiah 61. He quoted quoted that in Luke chapter 4. 
He's going to refer to Daniel later on in this same discourse. He's discussed other prophets. He's done a lot of stuff in the, the Pentateuch. And from the Pentateuch, let's tr- turn to Leviticus 26. Now, Leviticus 26 parallels a lot of what Jesus spoke of in, in a, a passage I think you're more familiar with, Deuteronomy 28. You good Jewish disciples. You're more familiar with Deuteronomy 28? In fact, tell me, what is Deuteronomy 28 promise there? Go ahead, Jim. Um, Cyclical? Um, no, you're, I think you're right on there. Yeah, blessings and cursings. In fact, look at your outline sheet. Yeah, blessings and cursings. Deuteronomy 28. Now, parallel with that is Leviticus 26. And let's take a look at that. And I'll have some of you read a little bit out of there. Leviticus is given to them, and Deuteronomy is given to them, before they are even a nation. In fact, the Pentateuch is given to the Jewish people to prepare them to know how to live in the land as a nation. So it gives them all the principles. In fact, the Pentateuch is their constitution of the nation. They're a common people. They have a common constitution, just like we have a constitution for our nation. Israel's constitution was the Pentateuch. And in the time of Joshua, they will have a land, and that will formally make them a nation. So this is before they're even a nation, God gives them their, lays out their history. And all of their history is right here in the Pentateuch. Somebody read just verse 1. Go ahead, Mary Lou. Leviticus 26, 1. You shall make for yourselves no idols, nor shall you erect a graven image, pillar, or obelisk, nor shall you place any sacred stone in your land, to which or on which to bow down, for I am the Lord God. Read verse 2. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And then he promises blessings all the way through verse 13. Just as the first part of uh, Deuteronomy does, Deuteronomy, the first 14 verses, blessings. And a lot of these blessings are material blessings. A lot of them are productivity of their crops, growth of their animals, and productivity of animals, protection from enemies, rain, and a lot of things that contribute to their agriculture, good health, strong families, all of these issues. In fact, it deals with virtually every area of life. If they obey the Mosaic Covenant, they will in fact be blessed. This means that God is sovereign over everything, the natural realm, to be able to produce blessings. But, on the other hand, what's the alternative? Beginning in in Deuteronomy 15, Well, we'll read Leviticus, but in Deuteronomy, which is parallel, we have the clear curses. Somebody read uh, Leviticus, however, and read Leviticus 26.14. Who's got it? You still got it? Everybody should have it. Yeah, Leviticus 26.14. But, there you go. will not hearken to me, and will not do all these commandments, and if you spurn and despise my statutes, and 
if your soul despises and rejects my ordinances so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this. Break the Mosaic covenant, and then he's going to lay out curses. This is what every Jew was very familiar with, and this is a record, before it even took place, a record of Israel's history. In fact, what the prophets do is they point out how Israel violated the covenant, and as a result, they would experience these curses. Every one of the prophets do that, except maybe Jonah. But they all lay out why the nation is suffering the way it is, and the sufferings that will continue unless they repent. You as a Jew, you're very familiar with that. Some of you have already memorized that, if you're a good Jewish disciple. Leviticus also looks forward to an eventual destruction of the nation. This is before they're even a nation. And Deuteronomy does somewhat similar. A destruction and exile. Somebody read, somebody else read 2633. Go ahead, Jim. Scatter among the nations. Now that is not Babylonian captivity. They weren't scattered. This is 70 AD. Go ahead. And will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate to these gates. Keep reading. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are with your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. And the land was unoccupied for 2,000 years. Okay, keep reading. Read your 39. All the days of its desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not occur on the Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, the sound of a good leap. Even no one pursue they will flee as well from sword, they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if with the sword, although no one pursue them. You will have no strength before their enemy, but you will perish among the nations, and will for those of you who may be left, will walk away because of their iniquity, and also because of the that they will That's a history of the last two thousand years of the nation of Israel predicted before they're even a nation. You as a good disciple, that is what you have in mind. You you realize this. Now, you don't realize that what you're asking is this is what's going to happen. You are going to be destroyed and you will go into exile. And this is what Jesus is going to remind them of without quoting Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And... If you're a good Jew, you'll also realize that there's going to be terrible tribulation before the Messiah comes. And we'll look at some passages before. I'm going to go through this slide first. This is on your outline sheet, all of these. And then I'll fill in that later. As a good disciple, you also know that Deuteronomy, and you could say even Leviticus, predict a restoration after a scattering, after an exile, after... Destruction. So let's read Deuteronomy. We don't need to read all six, but uh, somebody get Deuteronomy 30, verses 1. Go ahead, Jim. So it shall be with all of these things that come upon you. All of these things that he described earlier, particularly chapter 28, which includes either blessings or cursings, which includes destruction, which includes exile, but all these things that come upon you, then what? 
blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them from all nations, where the Lord your God has Scattering, there's the scattering. And you return to the Lord your God, obey him all your heart and soul, according to all that I do today, you and your son. Then the Lord your God restore you from captivity. Restoration from captivity, restoration from scattering, that has not happened yet. And have compassion on you and together you Okay, he's doing that today. He's regathering them today. Moses predicted it before they were even a nation. He lays out their future. The prophets remind also of this future. And if you read on, he just gives more details concerning a restoration. Now, we saw from uh, Ezekiel 37 that restoration is going to be in two phases. We are looking at today, in 2021, phase one of that restoration. They're in the land as a nation, politically, but they have not experienced phase two. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, remember I gave you that little overview of Ezekiel, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to bring it together, and they're going to have phase two of their restoration. And most of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's Gospel is speaking of that restoration and protection. So restoration, and then we won't look these up, but then we'll have the coming of Messiah, which every Jew knows. He would know Isaiah 2, he'd know Psalm 2, he'd know Isaiah 9. You know Isaiah 40, and you're familiar with Isaiah 9. You'll be reading it. You'll be getting Christmas cards. Isaiah 9. There's two phases in those uh, verses 9, 9, 6, and 7 there. Remember? The son shall be given a child. The child shall be born. The son shall be given. And what? And the government shall rest on his shoulders. Well, the government resting on his shoulders part is even future from our day. But it's messianic. So the coming of Messiah... And if Messiah comes, parousia, what? You get Jews. Kingdom, exactly. Kingdom established. And we looked at, remember the last kingdom in Daniel chapter 2? that We over did an overview last time. That kingdom will be established. So you as a Jew, you know Daniel 2, you know Daniel 7, you know other passages, you know that when Messiah comes, this, all of this is in their minds. It's a little fuzzy. But they've studied these passages, the disciples have, and that's what they expect. And when they ask the question, they're asking basically, when is this terrible distribution coming, this restoration, the coming of Messiah, and when is the kingdom going to be established? Now they're thinking more positively. I was thinking they probably aren't thinking about when it's going to get really bad, because they probably whatever is going on is really bad. Already. So, yeah, yeah, so this is really bad, so we're looking for we're looking exactly, and I would agree with that. Very good. Now, the tribulation is very, very clear in the Old Testament, and the reason I'm introducing this is because when we, next time we'll get into verse four. Verse four begins a very specific time that the Jews were aware of. And that Daniel, that we looked at that, Daniel chapter 9, makes very clear, he gives us the time frame on it. And I think what we're talking about, beginning in verse 4, 
is Daniel's 70th week. And I think all of the Olivet Discourse, verse 4 through verse 26, is Daniel's 70th week. Now I'm saying this, so I'll get to it in closing here, for a couple of reasons. I think we need to be not only clear on what this is teaching, but it'll protect us from some of the issues, the problems that we can fall into when we study eschatology. And I'll get, get back to it. So you as a good Jew, you're familiar with Daniel 9. That week has never been fulfilled. You're, you're anticipating the 70th week of Daniel. They're not familiar with it today. Nope, not yeah, well, they're not familiar with Scripture today. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful, Lord, if they Absolutely. 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 This time is going to be a time that is unprecedented. That's B on your outline sheet there. Somebody read verse 21. It's unprecedented. No time ever in history has been like it. And Jesus says, and there'll never be a future time like that. He's got it. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the world until now. Okay, has not happened since the beginning of the world. In other words, it's never happened in history. And what else? Nor ever will. Nor ever will. What does Daniel say? You want to look up Daniel, or who's got Daniel? Craig's got it. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, was since. There was a nation, even to the same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Okay, did you catch, catch the little phrase? There's deliverance, but what's preceding the deliverance? A time that has never been. You're a good Jew, you've read Daniel. It's unprecedented. In fact, uh, Jeremiah, this is what Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. He says, alas, for that day is great. And he goes on, there is none like it, and it is a time of Jacob's distress, time of Jacob's trouble. This is a very specific time. Daniel gives us the length of it, seven years. This is what Jesus is expanding upon in the Olivet Discourse. And there's other passages that tell us that it's unprecedented. There's a couple there. It's also great. Someone look up uh, Revelation 7.14. Somebody look up 21, Luke 21.35. Somebody look up Revelation 3.10. Who's got Revelation 7.14? Okay, Jenny, somebody who's got... Somebody else? You got 3.10? You got Luke? Okay. Jenny? I said to him, my Lord, you know, in each of the what's great tribulation, they have watched the Great Tribulation. And when you read 24-21, how did it describe it there? Also, the Great Tribulation. So it's unprecedented, it's gigantic, it's great, it, it's uh, terrible in its greatness. But it's also worldwide. You've got Luke 21-35. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all all the, all those who dwell on all the earth. Very good. And you've got Revelation 3, 10. Because you have my word about patient in the whole world, you should try those. That's coming on the whole world. It's worldwide. 
And you have Isaiah 34, 2 as well that speaks of all nations during this period of time. So it's unprecedented, it's great, it's worldwide, and specifically it is within a seven-year time frame. And it's so great that to live in that time, death is even preferred. And I'll read a couple of passages. Revelation 6, 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's in the midst of this seven-year period. They want to die. So terrible. It's a terrible period of time. Revelation 9, 6 there. Men will seek death and will not find it. Won't he be able to commit suicide? And they will long to die, and death flees from them. Terrible time. This is what Jesus is describing. And I believe, beginning in verse 4, we have the beginning of a seven-year period that will end with the coming, or the parousia, of the Messiah. And there's hope there for you and I. Because the Olivet Discourse does not describe the event that removes you and I from it. In fact, that Revelation 3.10 promises that we will be delivered from that hour of testing or that time of testing. Well, let's look at this end of the age. The disciples are hearing the Olivet Discourse. What they're unaware of is Jesus is going to give them preparation for their ministry in the URD. What is that? <laughs> the upper room discourse. <laughs> the upper room discourse. All right. And the next day, Messiah will be cut off. Jesus also predicted that he would rise from the dead. Now, the disciples, all of this is fuzzy. They have all those other expectations that I gave you and that are on your outline sheet. Jesus is going to raise from the dead, and that will be on the Sunday after crucifixion. And now there's a period of time that is unknown, even to people like the Apostle Paul, and even to you and I, after 2,000 years. They have no concept, no understanding of this mystery. What is that mystery that started on the day of Pentecost? And ends at the rapture? Church age. Now the question they're asking, the end of the age, they have no concept that it will actually extend after a church age. They expected him to come right away. Right away. Or shortly at least. Exactly. But, in that interval, or after that interval, there's going to be get what kicks off. This is what Daniel tells us. We saw that when we looked at Daniel. Daniel says there's going to be the covenant with this prince. And we'll talk about that next week. And it kicks off the 70th week. So it's one week or of years, Shabua of years, seven years. In the middle, Jesus is going to describe something takes place in the middle. That's verse 15. And then at the end of the seven weeks, he's returning, and chapter 25 tells us about the kingdom. That's the Olivet Discourse. And what we'll look at next time is this tribulation. Now, just in closing here, why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, within our camp, there are two approaches to the Olivet Discourse. 
Well, there's several of them, but within our more conservative, premillennial, futurist interpretation, and I'm talking of more the uh, Hal Lindsey group and others that are just as conservative, good Bible teachers, they take the approach that the first part of the Olivet Discourse is fulfilled in the church age. And what I've tried to do is make the point that it deals with a specific time that is after the rapture. So what this avoids, it avoids a sensationalism. And if you read The Late Great Planet Earth today, that book is already outdated. The examples that it gives, most of those are outdated. But we want to avoid that. We want to teach the concept of the imminent coming. We should be prepared at any moment for the, the rapture, but we should not necessarily associate events with, at, with Olivet Discourse. That's why I'm making a big deal out of it. To avoid primarily sensationalism. Now, I don't think the seven years are just going to automatically change. I think things will, in fact, lead up to it. And what we may be seeing are things leading up to it. But not don't identify what happens today as fulfillments of the Olivet Discourse. Does that make sense? I'm going to emphasize this. Another reason is just interpretive precision. We want to be precise in our interpretation. And that's why I've gone to some pains today to identify the period of time that Jesus is predicting that is future, to avoid sensationalism, and to keep precise Bible interpretation. Last thought, coming of our Lord is an important doctrine of Scripture. Church today is neglecting it because it puts all of life into proper perspective. And as we move through the Olivet Discourse, we'll gain some of that proper perspective. Who wants to close for us? Jim, you've been quiet. Want to close for Oh. <laughs> Why don't you close and then you can ask. I want to give thanks, especially today, in word. It's a long letter to us. It's what you decided to disclose to us. Help us build our faith. to live our lives Amen. And your question? Well, in what sense should we not be surprised as having the officer of avoiding uh, associating friends today? In what sense should we not be surprised? Well, we should not be surprised because of the doctrine of imminency. In other words, the disciples expected and thought that he might come in the first century. And I think we should maintain that same attitude. In other words, an attitude of urgency, an attitude of preparation, an attitude of uh, looking forward to this blessed hope. Should we be recognizing as it takes place? Yeah, I think it, I think it, yeah, I think in general, what were the words of Jesus to, uh, you know, they could predict the climatology, but they could not see the signs of the times. And I think in that sense, we should be paying attention to what's going on in the world. So there's kind of a, there's a balance there, but we should, I think, avoid sensation. So it's more of being aware of what's happening and recognizing that God is moving momentously. Sovereignly. has not put sufficient pieces on the table for us to be able to say, this is 
I think of all the times the Antichrist has been, oh, Kissinger, oh, so-and-so, oh, so-and-so, you know. Obama now, yeah. Well, you know, I avoided that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, but, so we should not... Not, not do those things, exactly. Because we do not have... He has not been clearly revealed yet. Those are just presuppositions. We have to be raptured for that. Right. I think so. So, the, I think the key issue is to live every day as if it doesn't matter whether Jesus comes today or a thousand years from now. Exactly. It doesn't matter. We live as if he's coming today and we're ready. Okay. But we continue living as if we're living for God. And Jenny was going to reiterate the same thing. Good. Yeah, and we'll do that when we get into the other districts. Exactly. Good. All right, we're way over.